and welcome to The Literacy Teacher's Life, a podcast for teachers and parents that gives ideas about how to help our children learn to love reading, writing, and all things literacy. I'm your host, Elizabeth Morphus, a literacy professor and a mom to two elementary-aged girls. Here we'll talk about thoughtful, creative, and realistic ways to navigate literacy learning so that your children will feel supported and seen in their reading and writing. Now, let's get this conversation started. Welcome to episode 19 of the Literacy Teachers Life podcast. Today, I am speaking with author Matt De La Pena, who is a children's and young adult author. Matt has written books such as Last Stop on Market Street, Love, Carmela Full of Wishes, Patchwork, and Milo Imagines the World. I'm going to get right to our conversation because he has so many wonderful things to share about his work, as well as tips for working with young readers and writers. So here we go. All right. Welcome, Matt, to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Good to see you again. Nice to see you too. How's California? Oh, it's very sunny. <laughs> I wish I was here more. So I feel like I've been traveling too much. Oh my gosh. Well, hopefully this summer you can enjoy the nice weather. Yeah. Can you begin by introducing yourself? Sure. My name is Matt De La Pena and I write books for young people. Great. So I'm going to start right away with your picture books. And your picture books are so loved and appreciated by teachers and students. So many of my graduate students use your books in their lessons. And this semester, we hosted a literacy clinic, and they were there very frequently. And readers can really connect to the stories in your books, as well as to the characters. So can we start by talking about Last Stop on Market Street? How did you get the idea for that book? Well, there are a couple things there. The first one is that I started that story trying it as a young adult novel, because that's really what I was focusing on at the time. And I wanted to kind of write a book where a young person tries to see the way an older family member sees. Okay. But it just, for some reason, it wasn't really clicking as a YA novel. So I set it aside, kind of forgot about it. And then my agent sent me some art from Christian Robinson, who was a brand new illustrator. Mm-hmm. And he had, I think he he had signed a couple contracts, but he hadn't put a book out yet. Okay. And he sent me his his blog and I saw a bunch of images. And one of the things that I was trying to do with this YA idea was I wanted there to be, you know, public transportation was part of it. And so I saw on his blog, he had a picture of him and his grandmother on the bus. And then I was like, oh my gosh, like that looks like a better place for this idea that I had about Mm -hmm. trying to see the world like an elder. Mm -hmm. So I totally shifted it into a picture book text and that's how it, that's how it started. Oh my gosh. So it really came from something from Christian Robinson. It did. It was like the wow. first time I saw that piece of art, I was like, oh my gosh, I could center the story around this idea. Right, right. And then it, and then, how did it work for you two to work together on that book? 
So he was brand new. We have the same agent. So he connected us before we even went to a publisher. And then I disappeared and wrote the story Mm -hmm. and then, you know, handed it off to him. And then he disappeared and illustrated the story. And then we kind of came back with, you know, minor little tweaks here and Mm -hmm. there. Like one interesting thing is he came back and he said, you know, I wish there was an animal somewhere in here because I love to do animals. And I was like, oh my gosh, okay. And then that's how the blind man came on with a seeing eye dog. So, you know, that was kind of fun, those little tweaks here and there. And it, and it happened to be perfect for the book. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So when this book is used in classrooms, what are your suggestions for teachers for how to use this book with students in the classroom? Okay. So this is a good question. There's one page in there where the grandmother says, you know, CJ says, why do we have to wait for the bus in all this wet? And his grandmother says something about, you know, trees get thirsty too. Don't you see that big one over there drinking through a straw? And this is, I think, such a good picture to use in terms of understanding what is really thematically going on in the story. You know, I always ask kids, can you see the straw? And then they always say, oh, I think it's the leaves, or I think it's the trunk, or a branch, or the roots. And then I always tell them, the disappointing thing I have to tell you is that you're all right. (laughs) And they don't understand what I'm talking about. But I say the whole book is about, you get to choose how you see the world. So if you see the straws, the roots, you're correct. Just like if you go through your neighborhood and you choose to see the ugly parts Mm -hmm. of your neighborhood, you're correct because they're there. But on the flip side, you could also choose to see the beautiful parts of your neighborhood and you'll also be correct because they're there too. So I think that's one thing I would say. And then Mm -hmm. one other thing, a lot of people see the book as the grandmother's trying to teach her grandson how to see his community as beautiful. But she's also, and this is like a, a deeper layer, she's also trying to show him how to see himself as beautiful within the context yeah. of his neighborhood. Oh, that's great. I love that. Oh, so many great uses for working with students. So I'm going to transition to another book that you okay. worked on with Christian Robinson, one of my favorites, Milo Imagines the World. And There are just so many areas in this book that are amazing to explore and think about, such as Milo's relationship with his sister, how Milo views other people's lives, and then Milo's relationship with his mother. So with this book, can you talk about how you approached this piece? Yeah, this, okay, now this one was more specifically began with Christian. Okay. Because we were, I think we had done two books at the time. We were on tour for Carmela Full of Wishes. And we were in a cafe. We had about an hour before we were supposed to do a presentation at a bookstore. And he and I were sitting there. I was drinking a latte. He was drinking tea. And we were saying, like, what do we want to do next? You know, what would the story be? We were tossing out ideas. And then he got quiet for a second. And then he said, you know, I think I'm ready to share how I grew up. Because he grew up with an incarcerated mother. And I, of course, knew this about him from having many conversations with him about things like this. But I was like, oh my gosh, okay. How do you do that 
in a picture book. So mm-hmm. I, of course, then disappear, you know, after the tour. <laughs> and I was thinking, okay, well, what do I do? The biggest decision I had to make was, how do you calibrate the volume of mm-hmm. where his mother is? You know, if you turn it up too loud, then it's just a book about incarceration. Right. But if you turn it too low, then maybe some kids will never see that part of it. So I think that was the hardest part of writing the story was that I had to figure out how loud to make that. And the final decision was to make it never mentioned in the text and just have where she is come through via the visual story. But then, of course, I don't want that to be the whole story because that's too simplistic. It's too flat. So the journey to get there ends up being the from my vantage point, I think that's the more important story, which is that he's sort of looking at people mm-hmm. and he's judging the surface of them, their face, the way they're dressed, and he's trying to figure out, can he decide who they are? Can he draw their life just by visuals? And then, you know, there's one boy, of course, in the story who he thinks is, lives in a castle, right? but it turns out he's getting off at the same stop as Milo and mm-hmm. he goes, it challenges him to think, gosh, maybe you can't really know anyone just by looking at their face. And when he says that, he's talking about the boy, but he's also saying the world can't really see the real me just by looking at me and my experience where where I'm going. Right. Right. Which was so powerful. And it was it's interesting when working with kids, the inferences that they make about where he and his sister are traveling to. Yeah. And a lot of people at the end, you know, when I visit a school, they'll say, what did the mom do? And that's always the first question that comes up after that book. And I always tell kids, I have to take a position when I write a book, like Mm -hmm. what point of view am I going to center in the story? So in this, this book, I chose Milo. Yeah. If I chose the sister, she might think a little bit more about what the mom did. If mm-hmm. I chose the mom, she, of course, would, you know, that would be part of her story. But I'm choosing Milo, who's a young boy who's not ready to think about what happened. All he's concerned with is that my mom is not here. That's why we never learn, you know, what she did. Christian and I have been at schools together, so he's comfortable sharing this, but his mom just had mental health issues and some addiction issues. So maybe it's that. But mm-hmm. we don't know because that's not the focus of the story. Right. Oh, wow. And do you tell kids that when you visit schools? Yeah, because yeah. Christian and I talked about it. And I would yeah. never, of course, share his experience right. without his consent. So, yeah, he he and I have talked about that before. Yeah. That's maybe what it is. But we don't know. But we don't know. Right. And we don't always have answers to these questions. And, you know, big things like that, there is yeah. no easy answer. No. No. Oh my gosh. I did not know that, that that's where the idea for the book came from. Yeah. Yeah. That's so powerful. And, you know, and like, it, yeah, oh, go I'll ahead. just share one, one other thing yeah, is that please. the book is also kind of, you know, if you want to get to a deeper, deeper level, especially in a classroom, mm-hmm. you can talk about the fact that, well, A, when a parent gets a sentence, their children get that sentence too. Yeah. So that's something to consider. And also the fact that America has 4% of the world's population and 20% of the prison population. That's mm-hmm. staggering. Mm-hmm. So that 
we know from that stat that a lot of kids have that experience. Right. Right. So you mentioned that you toured with Christian for Carmela Full of Wishes. This is what my two daughters, this is one of their favorite books, I have oh, to tell you. <laughs> so you show some of the frustrations that siblings can have with each other. Mm-hmm. That definitely helps with kids. <laughs> and the idea of hope also runs through the book. Can you speak about how you see this book supporting and encouraging young readers? Yeah, I think yeah. Carmela's kind of my favorite picture book just because it's quiet. It's quiet and it doesn't have to be this big loud thing. It's just about a brother and a sister Mm -hmm. and and a girl who really just loves her family. And even though the brother and the sister in the story are irritated with each other (laughs) and and the boy wants the freedom to just do the errands by himself because that's how he always does it. And, you know, Carmela's just happy to be there. But when she sees her brother's frustrated, now she's got a project that she's frustrated too. But when something happens where Carmilla gets hurt mm-hmm. and you know loses her dandelion, her brother steps up. And I think to me, that's what family is. It's like, you know, you can battle and argue and all that stuff and be jealous of each other. But, you know, at the end of the day, you love each other and this is your blood. So you're going to yeah. step up. And then after you've stepped up, you might fight again. <laughs> but but also like Carmela on a, on the deeper level Carmela is mm-hmm. part of a mixed status family. Mm-hmm. She has an undocumented father and a US mm-hmm. citizen mother and there are millions of people in this country that have that story. So it's not super novel. So I kind of I wanted to highlight that because you know my dad grew up in a mixed status family. His oh, wow. his dad never became a citizen. He's from Mexico. His mom, she's also Mexican, but she became a citizen, but he was in a mixed status family. And so I just kind of wanted to explore that part of our country. Right. And just that it's amazing because you're you're really, all the books, there's so much is centered around family and just there are so many differences between families, but also so many similarities, the bonds that we have. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So you spoke a little bit about your many visits in schools, and I, I saw one of your posts on Instagram. I think this weekend that you were just at, you were been on the road, yeah, uh, speaking with readers. So when you're on these tours, how do you hope that teachers will use your books in the classroom? Well, the one thing I love is when teachers are nimble and they follow the conversation in the class, like yeah. they let because I think. All books can be many, many different things. They can lead to many different conversations. I always say, at the end of the day, a book is just a vehicle for conversation. But, you know, so if in Milo, the class sort of moves toward this idea of lazy stereotypes, and that's the majority of the conversation, I think the best educators just follow the class Mm -hmm. and they just have that conversation. And this is where the energy is and we'll, we'll go here. But another class might want to talk about the mom and where she is and why are there guards there and why can he only see his mom, you know, once every other Sunday. So I think the best teachers follow the class Mm -hmm. for the majority of the conversation. But you might also at some point ask a question that might lead to the class seeing something else that hasn't been mentioned before. 
Like, I just love when teachers allow kids to be the experts, Mm -hmm. to be their book. And, you know, I think great teaching is just facilitating. Yeah. I have a uh, YA book called Mexican White Boy. And this one teacher in Arizona, she told me about her experience teaching it. She's white. She teaches in a predominantly Mexican community. And um, she said every day, every year, she reads it out loud at one point during the year. And she says, inevitably, it always happens that she gets to a word in the book and says, this word right here, it's a Spanish slang word. What does it mean? And she said, can somebody help me? And she said, always what happens is a tough Mexican kid in the back of the class will lean forward and tell her what it means. And in that moment, she's like, it's so wild to watch the energy shift where it now becomes his story. He's the expert and they're Mm -hmm. helping me understand the world. And like, that's, that humility is like what teaching is all about, I think. And so powerful for the students. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They're the insiders. Right, right. Oh my gosh, that's an amazing story. And how great that she reads it every year in yeah. with different perspectives. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So in terms of readers, what do you hope readers will learn or take away from your work? Well, I always highlight working class communities. So mm-hmm. I hope that, you know, for kids growing up in working class communities, I hope they feel like, oh, you know, this is like my world. This is my book. Yeah. But I also think it's really important to share books like this with kids who aren't growing up that way. You know, maybe they're, you're sharing it at a private school or a wealthy Mm -hmm. suburban school, because I think books can be such a powerful empathy tool. And, you know, you see someone else's life and here's a little girl, Carmela and Carmela full of wishes who has a dad who used to stand around and wait to get picked up to do a job under the table Mm -hmm. because he wasn't a citizen and maybe they, you know, a reader has no experience with that. But you can see, like you said earlier, there are so many similarities that that child may share yeah. with Carmela, even though their context is different, you know? And right. I hope that, you know, that's what books can do is like, hey, like, I'm so similar to this character, even though they're a different race growing up in a different family. So right. it's those connections. That's like how books are windows and mirrors. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It always goes back to, Dr. Rudine Bishop, right? Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, it yeah. always comes back to her. She had that amazing idea. Exactly. So you spoke about it previously, your collaboration with Christian Robinson. How do you, so you talked a little bit about how you've approached projects together. So in terms of new projects, will you continue to work together? And if so, how do you keep approaching new work together? Well, you know, here's the way it usually works with a writer. So the story may come from the writer Mm -hmm. and then the illustrator has to decide, is this a project I'm, I want Mm -hmm. to spend time with? Because obviously, you know, this takes a lot of time to illustrate a book. So you have to, the illustrator has to be super excited about it. So, you know, what will usually happen is I'll come up with a story and I'll, kind of go through my agent, who's also Christian's agent, and will he will ultimately look at it and say, oh, I'm excited about this one. I want to do this. Or maybe that could go to someone else because I have like these four projects I'm doing. So that's kind of like the business side of it. 
But ultimately, Christian is, he's so good. Mm. When I have a heavy text and it's like a, a little, almost too heavy for a picture book, okay. he comes in and he undercuts all that heavy with his whimsical pictures and illustrations. And I think it makes for a good picture book. So I always try to hand him things that are a little bit heavy because I know he will like bring it into the children's world. Whereas some books like Love or Patchwork, I wanted them to just remain heavy. You know, maybe they're they're not the perfect project for Christian. Maybe I have to go somewhere. Okay. You know what I mean? Like you, yeah. you just sort of figure out different illustrators have different strengths and interests. Right. Right. So interesting. Yeah. You actually spoke to my students a few years ago about writing. It was such an interesting conversation that they had with you. So I was hoping you could just speak a little bit about your writing process and how you approach writing a book. Yeah. So it depends on what it is. If it's a picture book, I just look at it as a poem. And then I have to... And by the way, in picture books... For me, there are two kinds that I like to write. There's the character-driven picture book like Last Stop yeah. on Market Street or Milo or Carmela. And then there's the concept picture book where it's like an idea you're exploring. And you might even have multiple main characters like Love mm-hmm. or Patchwork. Yeah. And so if I'm writing a character-driven picture book, the goal is to just err on the side of the character. It's all about the character. I got to follow the character and make sure they have an interesting arc. Yeah, there's going to be an idea that they're so, that's the context of their experience, mm-hmm. like in Last Stop with the grandmother going to the soup kitchen, right. with Milo, of course, going to visit his mom. But, you know, really it's all about the character and, and I have to be in service of the character first and foremost and of me as the writer second. It's secondary. And here's a theory I have on picture books. I think you shouldn't try to arc the character too much. It has to be just Mm -hmm. a fraction of a movement in a new direction. So CJ, you know, his mom points out the, or I mean, his grandmother points out the rainbow over the soup kitchen. And for the first time on the whole trip, CJ thinks, God, I want to try to see the world like my grandma. How does she find beauty where I never even think to look? So in that moment, he tries to see the way she sees. But on the way home, after the soup kitchen, he still might be like, I just want to go play with my friends. You know, he's still the same kid, but it's a fraction of a movement in a new direction. Mm -hmm. So like in a, in a novel, you can arc the character much more dramatically, but I don't think it's real if you try to do that in a picture book. Right. It seems too wrapped up or artificial. Okay. Now in a concept picture book, this is to me like, the biggest challenge is how do you arc a story that's more of a concept and it might have multiple main characters. So that's the challenge because you still need that sense of arc. So for example, in love, I thought, well, what is the arc if it's just an exploration of love in young people's lives? Mm -hmm. And then I thought, oh, well, because this is my own belief. I think like when you're young, love is given to you. It's not agented. And then at a certain point, even though that's still vital, you have to have that second version of love where it's like you looking out into the world and trying to name love for yourself. And that's the more agented part. So I had 
that adversity in the middle of the book like disrupt mm -hmm. the exploration of love in that one way. And right. as the kid gets older, they start to like, from that point on, after the adversity, after the dream, the kid is always looking out into the world and trying to name love for him or herself. So, you know, it's like, how do you arc a concept book? You have to figure that part out. So for me, that's the biggest thing. And then the last thing I'll add is that, you know, I think there's two things you have to do as a picture book writer. You have to get the story right, but then you have to get the music right. And to me, if the story isn't a song that you can just, it, all the notes fit, right. then it doesn't work, you know? Oh, interesting. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So for teachers who are working with kids on writing, what suggestions do you have so that kids enjoy writing? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think it's really important to write what you're passionate about, right? Mm -hmm. So like, if you love video games, tell a story like with video games or yeah. actually tell the story of video game characters. Like, I think you have to follow your passion no matter what. Because I think sometimes kids learn this distinction between writing for school and writing yeah. for real. And how do you, how do you like make the school writing as close as possible to writing for real? Mm -hmm. And I think it's just allowing ultimate freedom for kids. Like if you love sports, it's okay to write a sports story. Right. And it can be very personal too. So I think that's one thing. But then in terms of making your writing good, I think one exciting thing to consider is mm -hmm. I think sometimes writing comes down to just interesting and surprising verbs. Like if you really think about what makes good writing, I think you can sometimes just isolate the use of verbs in a book. Like I know in, if, if I think about Last Up on Market Street, Mm -hmm. The first part is CJ pushed through the church door, skipped down the steps. So pushed and skipped. Those have more energy than yeah. CJ came out of church and walked right. down the steps. Like he pushed through the church doors yeah. and skipped down the steps. So, you, you know, you're looking for that, like there's energy in the verbs, mm -hmm. but then also surprising verbs. When I'm a reader and I come across an interesting verb that is an unexpected, it's in an unexpected place. I get so excited. It feels fresh. So I think right. as a teacher, you can really focus on the power of verbs. Yeah. That is such a great strategy for teachers, especially yeah. in, in the teaching and also in the editing, in yeah. the revision oh, stage, actually. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's great. Actually, you know what? To echo yeah. what you just said. Yeah. I think you're exactly right. It's all about, that's when, you don't do that in the first draft, right? No. Right. You do that in the editing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there, oh, that's a great one. You talked about following your passions and with getting kids writing. What suggestions do you have for helping kids find ideas about what to write about? Mm, I think the brainstorming mm -hmm. stage of writing is pretty important. I think most writers, especially if you're writing a picture book, you probably spend over half the time writing the book in the mulling stage, right? Yeah. 
just like kind of like taking a walk and thinking like, well, what do I want to do? What's exciting? What's interesting? Mm -hmm. And I read selfishly and I listen to podcasts selfishly. And what I mean by that is I'm always listening to the podcast, but I'm also like secretly searching for something (laughs) I think is intriguing that I could play with. Right. I love uh, Sapiens by... I think his last name is Harari, and it's about the history of human, humankind. And he goes way back from the beginning, you know. And I love listening to that book because along the way, there are probably like a thousand different picture books in that nonfiction yeah. book. And there's also a, a young adult version now with that's a graphic novel, which is incredible. Okay. But so it's a mindset. So maybe I think one interesting strategy for a teacher is to have a big discussion before you even get to the story, you know, writing of the story, talking about how you can read selfishly and move through the world selfishly. In other words, searching for stories. Because I got to tell you, I'm not making up stories. (laughs) I'm just seeing them in the world right. and then translating them to the page. That's the only thing I'm doing. I'm not making anything up. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Right. Nothing's 100% original, right? Exactly. Exactly. We're always getting ideas from somewhere. Yeah. And that's yeah. kind of fun. Yeah. Exactly. You're a parent. I am as well. And I feel like I straddle this interesting world of, you know, with teaching and then parenting. And this past semester, I had so many questions from parents who are concerned because their child either doesn't like reading or doesn't like writing, and they wanted Mm. to know what they could do at home. So I was curious from a writer's perspective, both writing and reading, what could parents do at home to help their child with either or both reading and writing? So I think, well, I'll start with the reading. Yeah. I was home, obviously, like all of us were during the pandemic. And I didn't travel for a year and a half. And it just so happened that it coincided with my daughter learning how to read. And so I got to watch it firsthand. And it was so amazing to see that process. And I have to tell you, at first, you know, I was the point person. And um, (laughs) so, you know, my wife was like, oh, you go do the reading part. So (laughs) we started and I was like, it was regimented. It was like, okay, let's sit down with these frog and toad stories and let's read one. And she would be so frustrated that she couldn't read it fast enough to actually experience the story because she loved when I read to her. But she'd be frustrated that she was reading too slow to enjoy the story. And so I was like, oh, this is interesting. And then what I watched is her figure out her own strategy for how Mm -hmm how to learn how to read. So yeah, I would still do that. I'd sit with Frog and Toad, which I think those stories are genius, and uh, and we'd work through the words, and we did flashcards. But <laughs> what I saw her do is take all the Dogman books we had, and she would just look at the pictures at night. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that's weird. She wants to yeah. experience this, the visual story. And then, like a couple months later, I saw her reading the the simple dialogue bubbles. So if it was okay. a dialogue bubble and it was like easy words, she'd read those, but then she'd flip through the pictures. 
And then I saw her read all the dialogue. And then a couple months later, she was reading the whole text. She was doing it slow, but it was fast enough to, I guess it was fast enough to where she could still get the story. So I think we underestimate the value of visual story. Mm -hmm. And so maybe graphic novels are an incredible resource for learning Mm -hmm. to read because you're slow to work through these words, but you're still experiencing the visual story. So you can kind of love the story while you're also kind of working through the text. And so Mm -hmm. maybe picture books are a great resource (laughs) as well as graphic novels. So my son, he, so my daughter's of course now she's reading like crazy, but my son, he's just turned five and he's just starting to want to read in the, of course, the Dogman books <laughs> and other graphic novels. He's just starting to read the sounds and the, the simple dialogue. So mm-hmm. I'm watching it repeat itself. So I wonder, first of all, you know, I know parents will say, oh, Pete the cat, do I have to read this again? But <laughs> maybe the child is getting something from it. Or, right. oh man, the Dogman books, like some of those jokes are so gross. You know, I wish they were reading something better. But maybe it's not our decision what they're interested in, like just follow them. And if they want to consume the story, there's going to be more urgency to learn how to read the dialogue. And then of Mm -hmm. course, the the narration. Right. So back to your earlier advice to teachers, follow the conversation of the class. So follow follow your child. I think so. You know, like, yeah. The easiest way to kill reading is to put something in front of the kid that they don't want to read. Right. You know, like a story they're not interested in or, you know, so I think that's, yeah. that's a big determining factor. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's a good one. Thank you. So before we close, is there anything else that you would like to share about your books or your work in schools? Well, I'm so thankful that teachers use my books. That that <laughs> means the world to me. I love watching different students when I go to visit schools. I love to see how they're different and how they're the same. But I think one last thing I would love to share, and this is kind of for teachers, but mostly for parents. I think sometimes we get so worried mm-hmm. about how fast something's happening, reading or being able to write. Right being able to tell a story, that we almost put this pressure on the child that they're going to disappoint us that if they can't do it up mm-hmm. to our standards. And and I'm thinking mostly about, you know, middle class parents, right? Which yeah. I I'm one of those now. When I was growing up, I had no yeah. pressure. It was like I was I had this crazy freedom because right. nobody was telling me you have to be an A student. I I could be an average student, and uh, that wasn't a disappointment. Sometimes I worry about the pressure we put on kids in more middle-class communities. Like I just think that pressure creates a weird feeling for a child of like, I could fail if I don't do this, if I'm not reading quick enough, if I'm not reading the right books. So I don't know, maybe there's, there's this cool parenting book, and I can't remember who it's by, but it said, we shouldn't be aiming to be a contractor, or I think that was a contractor. We should be a gardener. 
So in other words, you're not following a blueprint about how to raise a child. Right. You're a gardener and you're just going to work with whatever is growing in your garden. You know what I mean? And right. I think maybe that's a good way to to approach parenting and learning to read and stuff like that. Because yeah. I think eventually every kid will find their way with reading. Yeah. So it's more I of just helping them along the way instead of like forcing things. Right. And sometimes it just takes a little extra time. It does. Yeah. I learned to read later than most kids. I was in late second grade. Yeah. My daughter learned to read much earlier than me, and my son is too. But it's just, you know, I'm a writer now. Right. And, exactly. You know, so like it's it's not a race. Although, right. you know, if you're a teacher, obviously you've you've still gotta do the work because you gotta do those tests. <laughs> exactly. I know. Yeah. Those oh those terrible tests. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So we're just going to end on a positive note, sharing something, if there's something in your reading, your writing, or your teaching life that's going well. And I can go first to give you a minute. So I told you that, and I think this really goes nicely with what we discussed. So in this literacy clinic that we host every spring, there was that we worked with a first grader who mom said, you know, he's starting to really enjoy reading, but only books he likes, and he doesn't he doesn't like to write. So my student who was working with him, we discussed what to do. And I give her so much credit because she really figured out he loves nonfiction. He loves animals. So she really focused on working with him on nonfiction books. And then she taught him how to read and take information from the book so that he could write a book of his own. And by the last session, he had written a whole book about Black Panthers he illustrated it and wrote it, and he was so proud of it. And it was just such a nice way to end the whole semester for him and to showcase what he can do in terms of reading and writing. I was very proud of my own student for all of the amazing... She let him take the lead, which was so that's nice to see. interesting because that's I feel like what we've been talking about yeah. this whole time is like, let yeah. the kid lead. Mm-hmm. And also love that child experience success. Yes. It's so much more likely to lead to future success because you're excited. You feel competent. And I think that's super cool. Yeah. I have one that I'll share that just happened yesterday. I was flying home from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Oh my gosh. I was at a conference there and I was flying home and so excited to get home because I don't travel (laughs) again for a while. And I just looked at my Instagram and I had a message that was like a message request. So somebody I didn't know. And uh, it was from a a student who's in college now. And they said, this young young man said, you know, I got to tell you, I'm so happy that you came to my school when I was in eighth grade. By the way, that makes me feel old because they're in college now. (laughs) But like you came to my school and I had just been placed in foster care and I was so down on everything. But you came to the school and you showed me that a Mexican-American person could do well in school and ultimately with books. And I read one of your books that semester. And then I've read a bunch of your books now. And now I'm a college senior about to graduate. And I just wanted to say your your visit made an impact on me. And it's like, again, this is like 
teachers, right? Like sometimes yeah. you have no idea right. how the little things you do may impact a kid. And you you don't get to see the blossom, right? No. Of that. It happens when they're out of your orbit. But every once in wow. a while, you get an email from somebody who remembers. And it right. kind of reminds you, like, gosh, like all the stuff you do, it matters. We just don't right. get to always see it. That What a great email that you got. What a yeah, great message. Oh my gosh. What a way to start the new week. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for speaking today. I really appreciate it. There are so many wonderful tips and suggestions and ways to use your work. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. It was good to see you again and, and yeah. say hello to New Jersey for me. Yeah, I will. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Wow, what a great conversation. I really hope you all enjoyed that. I've read so many of Matt's books with kids, with my own kids, but today I learned so many new pieces of information about his work, especially where he has gotten some of his ideas for his books from. I really appreciate how Matt lets kids guide the conversation and the reading of books and also guide their own writing with choosing topics that they really enjoy and are passionate about. I hope that Matt shared something that makes you think differently about his books and stories and even how to approach reading and writing with elementary students. I'll be back in two weeks. I really hope that you've enjoyed this month's focus on books and children's authors. And until next time, you can find me on Instagram at The Literacy Teacher's Life. Or as always, you can check out my blog at theliteracyteacherslife.com. I'll see you in two weeks. And that's it for this episode of The Literacy Teacher's Life. Get in touch. I'm on Instagram at The Literacy Teacher's Life. My email address is Elizabeth at theliteracyteacherslife.com. Thank you so much for listening. Please tell a friend about this podcast. And of course, you can leave me a review on any podcast platform where you listen. I so appreciate it. I'll see you next time. This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM, women's voices amplified.